Um, well, this evening, is, uh, as Ian kind of alluded to, we're, we're kind of bypassing, I think, some of the really great, iconic portraits of Washington and uh, looking at uh, one of him uh, painted by a Robert Edge Pine uh, in 1785. And in the brief time we have together, I'd like to share with you a little bit more of what's known about this uh, a rather obscure painter and his often overlooked a life portrait uh, of, I think you would agree, one of our nation's uh, most recognized uh, individuals. And I think it's really appropriate with the July 4th holiday coming up too, that this is a portrait painted uh, in our nation's infancy. I think a lot, you know, before a lot of these iconic images, particularly the Stuarts that you see behind you, are presidential images. I mean, that fu that's a future yet that's not uh, there for Washington when we look at this piece. Um, so I think that's also kind of an exciting thing to think about uh, when looking at it. And finally, I understand that this month's uh, talks are focusing on the topic of nation builders. And I think in looking at the portrait, it's also a great exercise to wonder, you know, I think we oftentimes will think, uh, you know, it's the sitter is the nation builder. Uh, but when looking at portraits, I think it's also a helpful exercise to ask, well, how much is the artist the nation builder or the portrait itself of the nation builder? So I hope those are some uh, questions that uh, you'll keep in, in the back of your mind as, as we look at, I think, uh, again, what is uh, a really quite a remarkable uh, portrait. Um, just a little bit about the artist. Robert Edge Pine was born in England. He was the son of a prominent engraver, John Pine. Um, we know he was married in 1749, uh, but apart from that, there is uh, very little known about his early life, uh, including his exact date of birth and his uh, artistic training. Um, by the mid to late 1760s, he clearly is making a name for himself as a history painter in London, and he achieves some acclaim uh, for his scenes from English uh, history. Um, but it uh, becomes uh, clear quite quickly that Pine isn't really rising up to, let's say, that top tier of uh, artists in England. And I think there's probably several reasons for that. Um, the first uh, might be that he, is, he appears to have been a rather uh, off-putting or offsetting individual. There seems to be some personality uh, problems there. Um, his own writings to fellow uh, artists in the 1760s kind of hint at that. And then his contemporaries in describing him call him things like irksome, quarrelsome, irritable, and cantankerous. Um, my favorite description of the artist has to be a 19th century a recollection of him, and I'm, I am going to quote from that. Um, so this is someone who would have known Pine after he leaves England and has lived in the United States, and he calls him, quote, a very small man, morbidly irritable. His wife and daughters were also diminutive. They were a family of pygmies. And I love this quote. I'm not sure whether the man really means, you know, he's small in stature, or is he trying to make some sort of commentary on his intellect or his talent or, you know, some combination thereof. Um, but I, you know, like these kind of quotes because in looking at Pine's portraits, I think uh, uh, the current example included, um, you kind of wonder, you know, where is that man in this piece? Uh, to me, Pine's portraits often have a real sweetness, a real gentleness to them. They're kind of innocuous. You know, I don't know what your reactions are to looking at this piece, uh, but you kind of wonder, where is this irritable, morbidly irritable man in the portrait that we see before us? Or is he able to kind of set himself aside uh, when painting uh, portraits of, uh, of people? Uh, by 17... Uh, 
excuse me, by 1772, Pine has, oh, excuse me, let me back up for a second. So, yeah, so one reason I think he has some problems in London artistic circles is the personality issue. The second more compelling reason is uh, his political leanings. And by the late 1760s, some of these English history paintings that he's doing, art historians have gone back and tried to, uh, you know, read into them certain anti-monarchical overtones to them. 1768, he paints a portrait of English politician and known sympathizer to the American colonies, John Wilkes. And I would argue his most famous work is painted during the Revolution, one showing America uh, seated at the monument to her martyred heroes, uh, the generals Montgomery, Warren, Mercer. I mean, these are the sort of paintings, if he's doing them in England during the Revolution, they're not winning him too many friends, they're not winning him too many commissions. And so I think he probably was hard-pressed for work, particularly uh, during the late 1770s and early 1780s. Uh, He moves to Bath, England in 1772 and befriends uh, George William Fairfax, who it turns out was a close friend and former neighbor of George Washington's. Uh, the Fairfaxes lived at uh, Belvoir, the neighboring plantation uh, to uh, Mount Vernon. Uh, they moved in July 1773 to England, never to return to Belvoir again. But Washington and George William Fairfax uh, kept up a very warm and close correspondence until Fairfax's death in 1787. Um, and just for you who like these sorts of family relationships, uh, Fairfax's uh, sister, Anne, married Washington's older half-brother, Lawrence, from whom uh, he inherited Mount Vernon. And it was Lord Fairfax, their father, who hires the young teenage George Washington to survey his lands in the northern neck. So I think Pine, it may be kind of a low point. You know, he's sympathetic to the American cause. And who does he kind of stumble into in, in Bath, England, but this close associate and intimate Uh, of George Washington. I mean, how great the luck is that, I think, for him. And indeed, it's Fairfax who writes Washington in the spring of 1784 with a letter of introduction uh, for Pine. And in that, you know, he really lays out Uh, what Pine's problems are, saying, quote, poor Mr. Pine is as true a son of liberty as any man can be, ever openly declared it and made so many enemies in this selfish nation that he is compelled to go to America to seek bread in his profession. Uh, Not long after that, Washington receives yet another letter of introduction saying, you know, this artist of eminence from England has arrived. They never say, you know, he's going to show up at your door on such and such a date. That's not quite the way things worked in the 18th century. Uh, But he, the second letter of introduction, uh, gives Washington, I think, a little more a heads up about what this artist is going to be doing here uh, in the new United States, uh, saying, quote, zeal for the American cause has brought him over from England to secure, whilst it is yet possible, faithful representations of some of the most interesting events of the late war, not ideal pictures, but real portraits of the persons and places concerned, scenes wherein you bore, Washington, so conspicuous a part cannot be faithfully represented if you are omitted. So in other words, be on the lookout for this guy. He wants to take your portrait, but he's not taking it as a commissioned portrait. And I think that that's important. Uh, this is a piece that ostensibly, you know, uh, Pine perhaps would have uh, looked at in his workroom into a larger 
a sort of a representation into a larger sort of a narrative scene. And I think that's different from a lot of the other portraits that you see of Washington, which are commissions by notable people. And they are, you know, I think real portraits in their own right. And I was talking with a colleague about this piece, and we both kind of agreed that I think in this canon of Washington portraits, the, uh, 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 the pine example has a sort of uh, a wilty, experience, uh, a wilty expression, if you will. And to me, I look at it, and there, there seems to me that there's something not fully realized about it. You know, I'm not quite sure what's going on in this portrait. And I, I don't know, maybe some of you can give me a little bit more of an idea. I mean, when you look at it, do you get a... For me, a really great portrait gives me kind of a narrative of the person or the time or the place being depicted. And I don't know about you, but I'm not quite sure what that event is in this picture. I don't know if any of you have a sense of that. You know, some of these background details are really kind of muddied. Um, and, you know, I think some of the, the, the facial features in that, to me, maybe aren't, you know, as fully realized as maybe I'd really like. So it's almost, to me, I come across and I think, was he still trying to work something out uh, with this piece, perhaps? Um, and in fact, there are actually three known portraits of Washington uh, by, uh, uh, by Pine, and they're, they're very similar, although the other two, um, his face is a little bit more modeled, more, uh, more fully realized, I, I would say. And these background details that you can hardly see here turn out to be a tent and a spear. And I don't really know what you know, is that supposed to be an encampment of some sort? You know, I look at this and I try to figure out, is Washington, you know, he's in his general's uniform, but is he acting in the capacity of a general? Uh, because the last I checked, you know, there's no Revolutionary War a battle that Washington went into holding a gold-tipped cane. Um, you know, so what, what, what's that about? You know, why include that detail? And so, again, I think maybe if uh, a Pine is taking this as a portrait to take back and to make into something larger, some of these details or so forth I haven't quite yet uh, uh, been worked out. Uh, well, as I mentioned, he arrives at Mount Vernon, Pine arrives at Mount Vernon um, about a year after these uh, letters of introduction arrive. Uh, he arrives on April 29th of uh, 1785, and he'd stay on the estate for 22 days. And during that time, again, we think he finished this likeness of Washington, as well as uh, those of the four Custis grandchildren, uh, Martha's uh, uh, grandchildren, and also Martha Washington's niece, Fanny uh, Bassett. Uh, Washington. So he certainly has kind of a productive uh, time at Mount Vernon. Uh, when he leaves uh, on May 19th, uh, he takes this portrait back with him, and it's not a portrait uh, perhaps that Washington will ever see again. And in fact, I think Pine is kind of low-key with this piece. Um, again, I think it's this idea that maybe if it's part of a larger project, he doesn't really uh, promote it on its own. Uh, you know, he doesn't really put out advertisements. I'm, I have this portrait of Washington, you know, come see it. And even more striking, I think, is he doesn't work with an engraver to publish it, to turn it into a print. And we know that he, he understood the importance of doing this, that America canvas that I mentioned earlier. You know, that was published in England, sold in England, and then also sold copies here in the United States. In fact, Washington owned a copy of that America allegorical figure that George William Fairfax sent him in one of these letters of introduction uh, uh, to Pine. Um, uh, 
And I kind of lost my chain of thought as I'm looking at that gold, uh, uh, gold-headed uh, cane again. But um, at any rate, I think it's a, a, a picture uh, that perhaps for these reasons, again, uh, does not receive much critical acclaim in its own time or much attention in its own time. And I think uh, after Pine's death, it's really a one, too, that again has become rather overlooked. Um, it really hasn't shown up in that many published sources since uh, Pine's uh, lifetime either. And I would argue that, in fact, it's the comments uh, Washington writes after Pine leaves about sitting for him uh, that are perhaps better known than the portrait itself. And again, it's such a great letter that Washington writes on May 16th, probably just a few days after sitting for Pine. Um, I would like to quote a few lines from it. And perhaps some of you who have uh, read uh, uh, Hugh Howard's Painter's Chair, uh, that's a, a recent book. I highly recommend it on Washington and kind of the making of American art. He quotes this letter. But uh, like so many uh, uh, other academics and art historians, they never reference that this is the painting that you know, prompted it. And I, and I, I think that's important. Uh, but the, uh, 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 the line from Washington, he writes on May 16th of 1785, in for a penny, in for a pound is an old adage. I am so hackneyed to the touches of the painter's pencil that I am now altogether at their beck and sit like patience on a monument whilst they are delineating the lines of my face. And you just get this sense of Washington kind of irritated. And I kind of like this thinking back to those comments about uh, a Pine and his personality. And you kind of wondered, you know, was Washington, was this his way of saying, like, maybe I didn't get along with this guy so well, or maybe I found him a little offensive? Because Washington is certainly never going to come out and say that uh, uh, directly uh, about, uh, about anybody. And so I think, you know, that kind of prompted me in looking at this piece. Well, you know, what else was going on perhaps in Washington's life? Uh, maybe Pine perhaps caught him at a, at a bad moment. Uh, and I have to say, Washington was a horrible sitter. I think it was well known among artists by 1785 that he was not a good person uh, to paint, uh, that he was very hard to capture an expression for. Later in 1785, for example, when the French sculptor Jean-Antoine Houdon comes to Mount Vernon, he follows Washington around religiously for two weeks until he captures the moment he wants on his face. And supposedly, it's a moment when he's made an offer on a price of horses that he feels is too high. And Stuart has a similar experience. He says, you know, really, Washington was expressionless until I mentioned horses, and that kind of perked him up. So perhaps somebody should have told Pine, you know, this is good banter when you're painting the general to perhaps talk about horses. What I find remarkable, again, I know uh, Ian had said about uh, talking uh, about Washington the general. Uh, again, I think very appropriate for the uh, upcoming holiday. But I find that this portrait, again, you know, painted right after the revolution. And what is going on in Washington's life at that point? And I think so often we think of Washington the commander-in-chief, we think of Washington the president, and we forget there's this life, this interim between those two events that I think in some ways tells us more, lets us know more about Washington than his commander-in-chief period or generalship period and the presidency. And in 1785, the spring of 1785, I would argue Washington is participating at nation building at really its ground, grassroots level. 
And that's, he's coming back to Mount Vernon, his beloved Mount Vernon, after eight long years of war, and he's desperately trying to regain control of everything. And Washington, I think we would have no problem saying in our, our current parlance, was a micromanager. And he has left his affairs at Mount Vernon in the hands of relatives and others for the past eight years, and now really is trying, in some cases desperately, uh, to get his lands, his crops, his mansion, his gardens. He wants to gain control over this again, get his affairs back in order. Uh, you hear him writing to people time and time again, I have new seeds that I'm ordering, I'm going to try out new crops, and oh yeah, I really need to get my affairs in order. And this is the kind of moment that Pine, you know, stumbles into uh, Washington on. Um, I also find it really remarkable that it's really in the weeks just before, during, and after Pine's visit that so many parts of Mount Vernon that I think we see as kind of signature uh, signatures of Mount Vernon, um, really the way that it looks today, are taking shape right under Pine's nose while he's there. And how many of you, I hate to ask, but how many of you have been to Mount Vernon? Recently, hope, we hope, maybe not. Any rate, but uh, if you think of Mount Vernon, and hopefully all you remember, the beautiful large dining room, the great extravagant green room, right? I mean, that was still a blank canvas when this painting was being done. They started it in 1774, but it really wouldn't receive its finishing decorative touches until 1787. And the real signature element of that room is a massive Italian marble chimney piece that's been shipped over from England. And Washington opens that uh, crates containing that just in like the week or two before Pine arrives. And he realizes, oh my gosh, I don't have enough workmen to install this thing. I don't know how to install this thing. You know, that's the kind of his daily existence that he's dealing with. Or, you know, when you approach the mansion, these beautiful kind of meandering serpentine paths, gravel paths, uh, leading between the trees, and then those open up to the mansion circle right in front of the west front of the mansion. Well, on May 11th, right in the middle of Pine's visit, Washington records in his diary that he himself is out there staking out the posts for that circle. And to me, that's really exciting. You know, what else is going on? Can we see any of that activity in this kind of a tired-looking portrait? And maybe there's good reason why it's a little tired-looking. I think this guy has a lot on his mind. There's a lot that he's trying to accomplish. And uh, so, again, I know our time has gone by really quickly, but for me, I think that's the real beauty of Pine's portrait, that in many ways I do find that it has, you know, my art historian side says, this has some problems, this has some shortcomings. You know, I'm missing some of the narrative. I don't think the execution is really great on this. Uh, but on the other hand, um, as perhaps like an incomplete piece, if you could think of it that way, it really kind of opens the door then uh, it's not, you know, something where all the loose ends are neatly tied, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, but it leaves open this possibility for us then to start questioning it, questioning that idea of, well, who is this person? What are we trying to see here? You know, why, again, might this not make it into our national imagery, our national conscious, and other portraits of Washington do? And so I hope I've kind of cracked that little window open 
on Washington and his life at this time, just a little bit with this portrait. And of course, I'd encourage you all, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Washington, uh, to come to Mount Vernon and visit us and again, discover the real uh, George Washington. And uh, I thank you, and I uh, understand that you'll have some time for uh, questions as well. What was the name of, uh, of your exhibition there now? Oh, our exhibition is George Washington and His Generals. And it really focuses on Washington and his relationship uh, with uh, 85, I think, of the most interesting men uh, he could have ever asked for. Um, some uh, uh, really um, uh, interesting characters ranging from Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold uh, to uh, other men like Henry Knox and uh, Nathaniel Green. Um, and that will be on view there through uh, January uh, 10th of 2010. And that, I should say, it's uh, uh, approximately 120 artifacts associated with those generals on loan to us from 40 institutions. So it's not only from our collections and Society of the Cincinnati's. Uh, we have a lot of uh, pieces there on loan, and this is the only venue for it. So um, uh, while you're there enjoying the mansion and the grounds, we also encourage you to enjoy our exhibitions uh, as well. Yeah? With, what was the status of his distilling business during this period? Uh, not yet existent. So Great question. His grist mill is in operation. Yeah. And what I love about this, again, it's amazing what's happening in this spring of 1785. It is so packed in terms of what's going on in Washington's life. Um, his longtime miller, his miller of seven or eight years or something, he fires like in the month before Pine arrives. And now he's got a problem on his hand, right? You know, he needs a new miller. That milling, that, that grist mill is doing some pretty brisk business for him. Uh, that's an important industry there, and he's, he, he's now lost this, this gentleman. Um, but the uh, distillery business, uh, that does not start up until 1797. And again, very quickly, uh, that operation uh, uh, really takes root. Washington, of course, at the time of his death, we believe, was the largest distiller in the United States. And uh, for those of you who haven't visited Mount Vernon recently, we've reconstructed the distillery. Uh, it is open um, daily now in the summer. Uh, in the off season when the public is not there, we have been known to distill some spirits, but uh, we do not uh, offer samples uh, currently uh, while uh, uh, we are open to the public. I was just thinking if it had been he might not have, yeah, I tell you, yeah. He, I, I think this was a really, this, again, and I think this is a really interesting time in Washington's life. You know, it, 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 uh, it really is, you know, everything that he's trying again. And he's a real control freak. Uh, you know, he really wants order. And he's really trying sometimes, really hard to get that, to get that, to get that order. And I'm sure while he was sitting for pine, all of these other things are just running through his mind. And I mean, that's what I think other artists are picking up on. You know, he, his, he sits down for a portrait and his face goes blank. Well, why does it go blank? Because he's just, he's just thinking about all these other things. And he's probably most of all thinking, I want to get on my horse and I want to ride to my plantations and I want to see what my people are doing. I want to see how those crops are going. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And besides yeah. his journal, his diary, mm -hmm. also wrote like 20 letters a day or something. 
Yeah, we, there's a, a tremendous amount of correspondence. I think the total amount is something like 40,000 yeah. letters. Um, yeah, and I mean, he, he's also got, I think, at this, you know, sometimes of the year he's got a bit of a backlog. You'll hear him saying, like, I meant to write you, I just, I just haven't had it. And especially in the spring months, you know, where he's trying to gear up his, his, his crops, and he's trying to gear up his farms, and he's trying to prepare all of that. Uh, there's a whole lot that, he, that he's trying to do. I also should have mentioned, um, uh, again, kind of events that are taking place in his life. Uh, four days before Pine's arrival, um, he notes in his journal or in his diary that he had received news via express of the deaths of Mrs. Washington's mother and her brother. And I believe the brother was her last surviving sibling. And in typical Washington fashion, that's all he says on that. He doesn't say, you know, and you kind of wonder, uh, again, you know, an artist, like, life doesn't stop when Pine comes or when any anybody comes to Mount Vernon. Life for Washington keeps going. But what are all these things that are on your mind? You know, what is going on in your personal life? And again, you look to the artist. Uh, uh, Joshua Reynolds has this great, great quote that says, you know, your, your, paint, your, your painting can't speak. You know, you have to speak for your sitter. And I think, unfortunately, maybe a Pine uh, lacked some of that ability, I would say artistic ability, to kind of overcome some of that. Uh, whereas I would say Peel, uh, the portrait that we passed, of course, in the, in the hall, magnificent portrait, I might add. And, of course, the Stuarts uh, that you see behind you, the Lansdowne and Athenaeum portraits. You know, there's an artist who I think, no matter how bad, you, you, bad a day you were having, or how bad you looked, he was somebody who was going to make you look great. And there was always going to be kind of a story to tell in your face. Um, yeah. Maybe he was trying to be different. Yeah, and again, I think, more than that, I think it's just important to remember that this is somebody who wasn't trained to be a portrait painter. He's trained to be a history painter. And I think that's where it's kind of unfortunate for Pine, is that that grand vision of, you know, I'm going to do these historical scenes of the Revolution, never never bore fruit. Um, He doesn't seem to have received much support for it. Um, and so far as we know, uh, perhaps only two canvases were completed. Uh, we know the signing of the Declaration of Independence through a print that Edward Savage does years later. And then Pine uh, has an exhibition of his paintings in Philadelphia, and he lists one of Washington resigning his commission. But I don't think we know what that looks like at all. And really, that, that's it. Um, but again, you know, he's not a portrait painter. You know, his thing is history scenes. And again, I think that's important to note, you know, at a time, you know, he comes from a country that has, you know, centuries that he can draw from. You know, he, he would understand the power that these scenes can have, right? The messages that they convey, this idea of a collective memory and, and the power of images on the populace. And I'm sure he sees, you know, my abilities here, you know, this is a blank canvas that I'm working with. You know, we, we don't have anything here in America. What are those events going to be? that we draw on, that are going to be part of, you know, uh, uh, our history. We don't have that yet. And here's this painter coming over, trying it out, and, you know, I think at the time maybe it was a little ahead of its time. Um, uh, There's no real evidence that he did, and, of course, uh, uh, Pine dies in 1788. And I believe, don't quote me on this, that Trumbull might still, might have gone back over to England around that time. Because, yeah, Trumbull picks up that same 
uh, theme, right? But of course, he has trouble kind of getting uh, getting that project going too, and it's one that'll consume him for what two or three decades right. to get his canvases done. But it's the same idea. It's the same idea, and I think Pine, in fact, probably predates Trumbull by a few years in thinking of that and coming over here and giving it a try. And so I think he deserves some credit for that. Um, Pine, um, unfortunately, um, the, the majority of his works uh, were lost in a fire in 1803. Uh, following his death, uh, his wife, his widow, uh, keeps the paintings. She tries to keep them on exhibit in Philadelphia. She also runs like a girl's uh, academy, a girl's school, which Washington sends Nellie Custis uh, to. He sends him to me. I didn't realize this either. I was like, I knew the references, you know, sending Nellie to Mrs. Pines, and it never occurred to me that that's the same Pine as the portrait painter. So to make a living after her husband's death, she opens this uh, uh, a girls' academy in Philadelphia, but that kind of doesn't work very well either. She's kind of forced to sell off her husband's paintings that he would have brought over from England. Um, eventually, they go to the, a man by the name of David Bowen, who uh, travels them up to New York, and then he travels them up to Boston, and then there's a horrible fire in Boston. So probably the best works by Pine are lost to us. We'll, we'll never really know, I think, what his full artistic vision or his full artistic talents were. Uh, we just have these portraits uh, uh, left that he kind of would be working on to make a living, essentially. Thank you so much, and I'm, again, delighted to see you all.